Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Hello and welcome to today's webinar, The Impact of the US Elections on UK-US Relations. My name is David Kelly and I'm the Executive Director of the British Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore. A very warm welcome to all of you online today. It has been an unusual year for all of us. Uh, COVID-19 has affected our personal lives, our businesses and the way we run our countries. Under recent pressure, um, there's been a lot of ongoing um, around the US election campaign scheduled for the 3rd of November. And I'm absolutely delighted to be welcomed by our fantastic panel of speakers today who will share their insights on the current status and what the various outcomes could mean for the future of US relations. Following the panel discussion that we're about to go through, there will be time for questions from the audience. So please do post these throughout the session into the Q&A facility on your Zoom toolbar at the bottom of your screen. I would now like to introduce David Marsh as our coordinator for today. David is the chairman and founder of OMFIF and our moderator. Before starting OMFIF in late 2009, David started his career at Reuters, going on to join the Financial Times in France and Germany, latterly as European editor in London. David has worked for City Merchant Bank Robert Fleming, corporate finance boutique Hawkpoint and London investment firm, London and Oxford. Having also written six books and supported the British Chamber on many speaking occasions, we're delighted to have him back with us today. David, thank you so much for your time. And without further ado, I'm really looking forward to this session and over to you. Thanks very much, David. Yes, and a warm welcome to everybody in Singapore. Looking forward very much to engaging with you over the next hour and a half. As David says, the focus of today's discussion is on what this means for the UK, bearing in mind that all of you have a link with Britain. But I think we have to draw our net much wider than this. This is a very unusual election in a very unusual year. And we have to think about the impact on Southeast Asia as a whole, where you all are, uh, plus China, where different things could happen in different directions depending on the outcome. Um, it's also going to be very difficult even in the next two weeks to tell what's going to happen next because we can see some last minute upsets as we've seen in the previous election four years ago. And as everybody knows, it's totally uncertain whether there will be a result on the 4th of November because there could easily be a lot of legal uh, argy-bargy about this after the results are declared. We'll go into all of those things plus what this might mean after the 20th of January, when either the existing president for a second term or a new president will be inaugurated, if all goes well with the handover. So to guide us through all this, I've got a panel of experts who will be giving their views to begin with, and then discussing the possible outcome and the implication for all of us with themselves and the audience. And in order in which they will be speaking, Angela Mancini, who's the partner and head of Southeast Asia for Control Risks, She's the only American on the panel today, so uh, we should give her even more attention than the other panelists. So welcome to you, Angela. You're going to be speaking in a minute. And Control Risk is obviously looking at the whole gamut of uh, security, overall political relationships, and things that could go right and wrong in politics. Rob Carnell, uh, second speaker, head of research, chief economist for Asia Pacific at ING Bank in Singapore who will be looking at the macroeconomics of the region and what this means for 
interactions between the United States, China, what this means for things like uh, trading blocks and all the big issues which are coming up in China-American relations. And then Phil Stiggles, who's global head of research at Cadence International, which is a firm spanning the globe looking at consumer research. Phil will be drilling down a bit more into some of the consumer research aspects. What does this mean for buying power in the different markets in Southeast Asia, in America, in other parts of the world? Where do you see the impact of the different presidential permutations? So first of all, can I open up please, Angela, uh, Head of Control Risks for Southeast Asia. You've had a lot of experience also. You worked in outposts such as Russia. Uh, what do you think are the main issues from a geopolitical point of view of what's going on now and just peering a little bit into the crystal ball can you help to guide us Angela through the next uh, six weeks or so let's not think about four years guide us through the next six weeks what should we be looking out for Angela over to you yeah no thanks um, I will say as the only American on the panel I can almost guarantee that uh, my level of anxiety is the highest and my level of interest in the news it's just really an intense uh, election. So looking at the next six weeks, I mean, first of all, you know, let's even see what the next couple of weeks brings. Just a brief word on uh, how we're seeing the actual election itself. The polls have been pretty steady. Biden is ahead of Trump in the polls, as we know. We all know the polls are not uh, 100%, that is not a crystal ball, as we saw last time. And there's so many factors uh, in this election that we've just literally never seen in the States, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's unclear how many people are going to come out to vote. It's the, the voter, the mail-in absentee ballots are through the roof. In many of the swing states, there's been more absentee ballots mailed in already than there were during the entire 2016 election. But there's voter suppression and there's allegations of voter fraud. There's disinformation now from allegations from Russia and Iran, uh, you know, and the rest of it. And, you know, the um, you may have seen the Department of Homeland Security actually just came out with a threat assessment saying that white nationalism and extremist groups are now the number one domestic threat in the states. And so we've never before in the states had an election where, you know, there's been potential calls to have armed militant groups actually out at polling sites. So it's extremely hard to predict. Um, I think the, the risk that we're watching is not so much security on election day, which is, is an issue, but it's also that transition period. So uh, if we have a contested election, either side who thinks they're losing is gonna be ext extremely upset to say the least. So uh, we worry not just about the old October surprise, but the November, December, and the January surprise. And so what does that mean for business? If you have the US market uh, kind of, whether it's the stock market or business investment coming from the States kind of embroiled in a contested election that has significant implications for business. Um, and if Trump, if it looks like President Trump is gonna lose, and he's on the way out the door and, and upset about it, you know, we're also tracking what might happen in that period as it relates to things like the US relationship with China. So does he kind of turn the reins over to Pino Navarro and the Hawks and let uh, even more strict measures go you know, against China or does he not? So the next six weeks period is gonna be pretty intense. And then we can also talk about what we might see with uh, you know, a Trump term two or a Biden term one. Before I go on to Rob, Angela, I'm sure you'll be up uh, late at night, uh, maybe drinking a few uh, glasses of strong whiskey or rum 
watching the presidential debate, the second and the first, the first one we had two weeks ago, the, the second one tonight, Biden versus Trump. What will you be looking for particularly? I'm just assuming you will be up. Yeah, I'll definitely be watching it. Uh, I've watched every single debate, every minute of every debate so far for right or for wrong, um, for good or for ill. So I, you know, what I'm looking for is, you know, number one, are we gonna actually have a debate? <laughs> I think we will. Number two, are they gonna actually cut the mics or are they not? You know, are we gonna have, so point being, are we gonna have a more um, uh, kind of a professional debate like we saw with Mike Pence and Kamala Harris or are we gonna see kind of a repeat of what we had before? Um, and then, you know, it's gonna be interesting to see, I mean, Trump, you know, when you're the incumbent, typically you want the, um, you know, if, you're, if you've done well, you want the election to be a referendum on you. And if you haven't done well, you're trying to make it, you know, make the other one look really, really bad. But let's see, Trump has not come out with a platform for this election, which is, you know, highly unusual in the states, you usually have a platform. They've just said, we're doing what we said in 2016. So what I'm watching for is, besides the style of the debate is, is there any policy at all that we're gonna see put forth? Is there any substance? Uh, is there any addressing of the increasing civil unrest and potential issues of, as I mentioned before, white nationalism and extremist groups? Or is it just kind of more of the same? I expect it's the latter, but that's gonna be interesting to watch because some of, the, some of the Republican criticisms of him from his own party last time was he missed the opportunity to look presidential, to put some ideas out there, and let's see if he also misses that opportunity again. Good. Well, thank you for guiding us through that. Now, let's go on to Rob and the macroeconomics. Um, whatever you may think of President Trump, the economic stewardship has actually been quite successful over the last three or four years. And even now, the decline in GDP may be only about 5% for America this year, which would be very big in a normal year, a very big decline. But in fact, compared with the rest of the world, uh, doesn't really look too bad. Um, I'm in Berlin, the, the Germans may decline by only 6%, which is not bad at all for Europe. Um, in the UK, as you will know, it could, could well be double figures. So Rob, do you think this economic part of the equation will actually be a supporter for President Trump? And then also guide us through the next six weeks, uh, if I can put the same question to you as I did to Angela. Over to you, Rob. Okay, well, the, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting point and a, and a very valid one you raised that the, the, the macro side of the US really hasn't been too bad. And, and you're right to say that uh, relative to, let's say, you know, Germany or the UK or, you know, any one of the European countries or indeed quite a lot of the, uh, the Asian countries, uh, US GDP will not be hit quite as bad. And of course, you know, on an absolute basis, it looks terrible, but on a relative basis, it doesn't look all that bad. Um, it's quite difficult to put uh, a finger on exactly what that is. I think that the major factor has been uh, extremely supportive uh, policy, both from government in terms of fiscal policy, giving uh, support to the unemployed, very, very generous support measures, perhaps a little bit too generous with hindsight. Uh, a lot of people were getting more uh, having been furloughed from their jobs uh, as a result of the COVID-19 uh, issue than they were getting actually in employment. It did perhaps suggest that a number of those won't be coming back uh, quite so readily, but that's certainly one factor. And again, as always, the, uh, the Federal Reserve standing in the background, just basically giving a nod to suggest that they'll do whatever's possible and whatever's left, frankly, for them, it's hard to say, but certainly giving a, a sense that they will stand by uh, and, and help the government in as much as they possibly could to provide that macroeconomic support. So it's been pretty good. The next six weeks or so um, is interesting. We've got uh, we've got a payrolls um, figure coming up um, 
you know, very shortly after that, that election. Now, this is at a point where all the unemployment benefits have basically stopped coming through. You know, the money's run out. Uh, a number of the states haven't got any more. Uh, the, the various parties can't make an agreement on whether or not to, to resume these or how much to spend. Um, so that's, that's drying up. It looks as if we might see some softness there, but that will likely come after people have gone to the polls. So we, we do expect, despite the fact that the fourth quarter won't look terrible, that the, the end part of that fourth quarter might actually start to look somewhat soggy. But again, in, in, uh, in reflection, looking at Europe, which is going into what appears to be a full-fledged double dip, and I'd throw the UK into that as well, um, you know, it's maybe not going to look so bad. Uh, the market outcome, of course, very, very uncertain. Um, Angela sort of led with, with the, the possibility of contested elections. But I think that's the thing that the market is currently fearing the most. Uh, they are pricing, I think, a Biden victory at the moment. If you look at what's happening to the dollar, to bond markets, to the stock market, it's a sort of unusual combination of, uh, of price movements that I think really only fits that logical explanation. If we get a contested election, I think, you know, a lot of volatility going to come through and it's hard to see how that ends. Do you think, uh, Rob, uh, just before we go to Phil, could there be a last minute surprise on the economy with the Congress actually doing a deal with the president on an economic stimulus package and an additional fiscal package? Or do you think all that will have to come after the inauguration in January? I honestly, David, I don't rule out anything um, with this administration. I think anything's possible. But I think if you think of the players involved here, um, you've got the Senate on the one hand that has to agree that they will actually, you know, say yes to something that I think quite viscerally a lot of them feel highly opposed to. The $1.9 trillion price tag on the, uh, the fiscal stimulus bill that it appears that uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, and Mnuchin have come to some sort of at least tacit agreement on. I think large chunks of, uh, of the Republican Senate will, will find way, way too high. I think they were reluctant to, uh, to even make the initial uh, suggestion for additional stimulus that they put forward. So I, I think it's, it's hard. Um, I also think that there's a sort of element of theatre to this. I, I don't think particularly the Democrats want to deliver a fiscal stimulus this close to the election. I think they'd like to leave it till after the election to take credit for it then. Um, at, at the same time, I think they want to not come across as being the people who are preventing it. Uh, and that's actually been quite helped by the fact that the Senate will probably not find it in themselves to vote for this. So if I had to bet on this, I'd say no fiscal stimulus before the election. But, you know, I, I prepare to be as, as astounded as I have by events uh, over the last four years. I, you know, nothing surprises me anymore. Well, th thank you, Rob. Yes, it is a roller coaster. Uh, Phil, you are the branding expert on this, and you're going to be talking also about consumer behavior in different parts of the world. And please do that as well. But before that, as a branding expert, I mean, how would you sum up in just say one or two pithy adjectives, the brand of Trump and the brand of Biden? These things are quite important after all, because so much of this is being done electronically, very difficult for people to actually see people in the flesh in the time of COVID. And as we all know, allegations of um, electoral misdemeanors with the hacking of emails and so on, all these things play such a big role. So it's often, perception over reality. What, what do you say about the brand before you get onto the consumer behavior? I, I think, kind of, first of all, it's about talking about the, the brand of the election overall. It, it is an absolute fascinating reality show. Um, it is amazing watching, uh, you know, these guys kind of uh, debate each other, whichever way you kind of want to talk about it, whether it's professionally done, whether it's presidential or not. It is fascinating to watch. And so the people in the UK who obviously know a little bit about 
Trump and, and Biden because you know Biden's been around with he was Obama's guy. He's a known figure. Um, whether people know much about him or which direction they're going to go in, he has at least got a little bit of presence. And I think that you come to Asia, the whole essence, everything about the US election is just fascinating. It's just, it's so not how Asian elections are run. It is genuinely an enjoyable slugfest as much as anything else. Um, and I think whichever side of the camp you're on, whether you kind of are into your politics or not, people do have perceptions of these guys. And so there is a brand that follows them. Uh, arguably, Biden's brand is tied to Obama's brand. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that is kind of probably what he's most well known for. Um, whereas Trump is obviously the brand Trump. Uh, we've heard about that for, for many, many years. Again, be it good or be it bad, it is very well known. On the consumer side, let's not forget the uh, consumers. Um, what What is Biden or what is Trump going to do for the consumer dollar or the pound or the Singapore dollar in their pocket and how are consumers going to behave? Are consumers terribly nervous and reluctant? There's been a lot of enforced saving all over the world because people, particularly richer people, are not actually going out and spending the money that they used to. So it's all piling up in their bank account. Is it all going to be uh, spent on a whole load of uh, luxury handbags uh, come January? I think there's a there's economic security of your country, of your own job, of your family is obviously top of mind for everybody at the moment. That's that's just that's just the realities of of uncertainty. Um, you're right. There is a, a sense of kind of uh, that holding back and kind of people are waiting to enjoy whatever that experience is. In in Singapore, the Singapore government is really starting to try and and bring up this kind of staycation mentality and get people out and about to explore their own roots and their own heritage and i think there's a real split in consumers some people love that and want to explore and what kind of you know sort of take that opportunity to see something new a lot of people are still very cautious and awaiting again in asia there's a lot of stocks there's a lot of investment your general consumer doesn't understand the relation between this election and what happens with their investments what they see is they see the power of the US and the brands around it. And that's what people are more likely to latch onto in the short term and wait until someone who is an expert in this, hopefully the guys on our panel will help guide us through this. Um, what does that mean for my savings and my investments long term? Well, we'll reserve all these things for Rob at the end. I'm sure he'll tell you exactly where to put your money. But before we get on to deeply serious things like that, Angela, I just want to ask you about what Phil just said. I'm very pleased, Phil, that you actually confessed to enjoying the first debate because I did as well. I thought it was good entertainment. And I know lots of Americans who said very po-faced, oh, what a terrible advertisement this was for American democracy. But this is America uh, in uh, red in tooth and claw, isn't it? That's what I thought anyway. Uh, I also like your word slugfest. And I liked the way they didn't cut the Americans, but the, the uh, <laughs> didn't cut the microphones. But Angela, do you think that Phil's way of looking at this is Correct, or would you like a kind of uh, much more pastoral and much more pastel-coloured debate without all this uh, red meat spilling out that we saw two weeks ago? So I do like that people are not on just kind of staid talking points because I do think, and I've noticed this actually, frankly, in the last election, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, people love or hate her, but. I think she didn't do herself a service by being uh, very um, kind of stoic in, in her reading because the, frankly, the American public, the communication styles we have now and the way people listen to things, even the news has changed. So 
Um, I do think we can't go back to the days of standing on a podium and reading very you know, straightforward talking points. And in fact, one of the news channels I was watching right after the last debate made a point of saying, wow, that was boring when they were talking about Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. And I thought that's an interesting read. But listen, I will say as an American, I do think it is uh, frustrating and a little embarrassing kind of what we've, um, you know, kind of what we've devolved into. And I do think, you know, I, I think there's so much policy to discuss. I mean, we've got climate change, whether or not people believe in that, um, you know, as these debates were going on, you know, the California where I'm from is on fire. There's all sorts of weather events. There's, you know, <laughs> pandemic that we're not addressing in the States. There's all sorts of uh, issues with, you know, relationship with China. And I think we do ourselves a disservice of not addressing any of it. I mean, I know a lot of people in the States that are still homeschooling their kids and they will be at least until Christmas time, if not into next summer. You know, what are we doing? Uh, I think we need an honest debate about, you know, the way forward. Uh, I'm sure we will have a more restrained uh, debate later on today. So I, I'm sure you're, you're right on that. Just on China, because I know that's one of the big things that you're looking at. Uh, just in a couple of sentences, uh, do you think that the relationship with China will fundamentally change um, if we do have a new president? Not really. And I think the, the issue is the following. Being, quote, tough on China is probably the only issue in the States right now that everyone, regardless of the side of the aisle you're on, agrees on. Uh, and that's not going to change. So a President Biden would be different for sure in terms of tone and rhetoric. There'd be predictability, transparency in what he does. Um, but it's still going to be tough on China. I think in the longer term, a, a Biden presidency would actually be tougher for China because what a President Biden would do would pull in the alliances with Europe and, and, and other uh, countries in Asia and try to go, uh, you know, go toe to toe with China on the, on the areas where they feel like there needs to be competition and that would be more unified and less, less you know, all over the place. But the Biden administration or potential administration is saying, we're gonna compete where we must and cooperate where we can. So there may also be avenues of cooperation, things like climate change, but net net, it's gonna be a rocky US-China relationship uh, going forward that's structural now. And the big question we're watching for 2021 is regardless of who's president, China's been quite restrained in their reactions to some of what the US has put on them, tariffs and, and the like. When does that start changing, right? If they get a Trump term two, or if they get Biden who, who keeps the same tack, at some point, they're going to bite back. Rob, on, on China, I know you're a great expert on the blocks and you've written and talked a great deal about this. Um, I think what Angela said is correct, that there could be a, a strategy uh, of ganging up against China if uh, Biden were to win. So, Rob, from your point of view, I remember in the old days, England had a football team. They had a football match. It was England versus the rest of the world. It was in the days when we thought England could beat the rest of the world at football. Could it not be that that could be China's nightmare, a China against the rest of the world, were Biden to win? I, I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, you know, I think certainly if you think about Asia in particular, uh, I think quite a few of the countries here are not sort of naturally wedded to just join a sort of US coalition against China. I think they see which side their bread is buttered on. I mean, a lot of the economies in this region are very, very, very closely tied to the economic fortunes of China. And there's no point in, uh, in sort of, you know, trying to make your bed, if you like, and say, right, I'm going to be on this one side. So I think from an Asia perspective, uh, it makes a lot of sense for the countries here to try and, and, you know, have a foot in both camps the whole way through, depending on, you know, what particular vested interest you're trying to push at the time. Um, I think for Europe, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. I think there's, there's very clearly uh, an idea that 
you know, a Biden administration is probably uh, an administration that they can do business with more easily, more transparently, uh, more uh, predictably, I think, than under the Trump administration. I think that predictability has been one of the hardest factors for Europe to get its head around, and the UK as well. I mean, it's often regarded itself as this, uh, you know, this sort of conduit between uh, between the US and Europe, not so much obviously post-Brexit, but you know, just trying to interpret the mood flows in the US and deliver those to Europe and try and come up with a concerted uh, policy that will, will move you know, both, both sides in the right direction. I think that's easier uh, to do under Biden than under Trump, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be you know, all the way uh, against China. Um, you know, there's just too much at stake, especially for Asian countries to really, you know, pin their colours to the mast so obviously. Um, just uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, Phil, about this, um, applying your insights into consumer behaviour as well. Again, the brand, we've been speaking a lot in recent days, various things I've been on about soft power. I mean, if you were uh, the Chinese leadership, uh, what would you do to portray China's soft power uh, somewhat more attractively than maybe they've been doing lately? That's a, definitely a big ask from someone that likes talking about consumer perspectives. Um, however, but you're on I, this. You're on this broadcast. You're, you you have to up your game here, Phil. Absolutely. Well, I, I do. I wanted to pick up on something that Rob mentioned there in terms of like you know the opportunities for for Asia. If you know if you've got a foot in both camps, and I would argue my controversial kind of uh, opinion or question off the back of that is, is a Trump win better for Singapore? Like. Because Trump will go into a more, he'll double down on protectionism and America first and things like that. So it is actually having somewhere like Singapore that is very firmly tied up with, with China and its trade links and, and very welcome to that, but also very much tied up to the US and, and Europe and, and built on a, a Western legal system. PM Lee in one of his recent uh, sort of parliament things talked about actually in a troubled world, Singapore is one of the few sort of almost like kind of safe places that you could go to so actually if there is more chaos and more uncertainty does that actually help singapore as a as a market does it help showcase to the world that singapore does have this foot in both camps better although you can take this too far can't you i mean angela what do you say about that putting your control risks hat on there must be risks uh, for a, an island state of only five million people uh, up against the beer moth what do you say to phil's new theory of foreign policy yeah, it's actually a really interesting angle. I think <clears throat> a couple things. I think that, you know, ultimately Singapore relies on trade and Trump in the U.S. White House is a lot more chaotic on trade than a Biden presidency would be. So I would say from that regard, it's probably net negative. I also think that, um, you know, Trump does create challenges for Asia. I agree with what Rob said about, you know, absolutely Asian countries. It can't be so simple to say, hey, we're with the US or we're with China. They don't want to choose. I mean, business doesn't want uncertainty. It doesn't want to have to choose and it wants to be just left alone. And, and none of those three things are going to happen anytime soon, probably regardless of who's president. But, you know, the chat, the, the criticism of the states, uh, frankly, even to some extent in the Obama years has been very active in Southeast Asia and helping Singapore in that regard as it relates to military, right? but kind of absent on other things. Okay, Obama definitely was, was, uh, was signing on to TPP, but that's gone away. And so some of the suggestions, if there were to be, let's say a, Bi a Biden pivot 2.0 would be, don't just focus on the military, focus on things like you know, trade, focus on things like uh, showing up and helping to do things like standard setting for the digital economy and the like. 
So I guess what I'd say is, you know, taking a step back, I think that a Biden presidency and the kind of different layers of multilateralism that they would have in addition to, um, in addition to the focus on things just beyond the military, I think would, would uh, force countries like Singapore less into a position of having to choose, if that makes sense. Um, I think I think I, I can see your point here. I'm sure Singapore would take a very balanced approach uh, on this and indeed would say multilateralism is the name of the game. I mean, this point, um, Rob, about multilateralism, that's a commitment that the Chinese leadership uh, has been uh, enshrined to for uh, 30 or 40 years now. It shines through their approach on, on trade, shines through their approach on sustainability, shines through also increasingly to things like debt restructuring. They're not members of the Paris Club yet, but there's talk that the Chinese will actually be part of a Western initiative to reschedule debts of the poorest countries. What we don't see, though, is this uh, in the military side, where there seems to be more unilateralism and more saber-rattling. So to, the question to you as an economist, Rob, would be how can the Chinese use this commitment to multilateralism in a way that also um, improves their, their public relations? Because you look at the public relations, look at the Pew research on China in all the countries of the world, from Vietnam through to Australia, from Britain through to France, Germany, United States, is, is plummeted. If I was China, mm. I would really worry about that. How would you bring the economic uh, and the military stars into some kind of alignment there and promote China's soft power in a more persuasive fashion? I would, I would actually push back a little bit against that. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at somewhere like uh, like Australia, I mean, I, I think it's it's really really turned quite bad. I mean, not surprising because China keeps on not importing some of their stuff and you know the barley farmers in Australia or the, the coal miners and the exporters are thinking you know what on earth is going on and, but China's been using economics and trade policy um, to, to, to bolster its, uh, its diplomatic approach very very effectively um, and uh, you know it, it chooses its battles and it, it typically does very well in all of those in some other places I think it's been exporting soft power very well you know, for example during COVID-19 um, it's been providing uh, vaccine support to Indonesia, to the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines has definitely taken a little bit of a pivot towards China. Uh, I mean, it's no longer engaging in some of the, uh, uh, the, the sort of dual uh, military exercises that were once going to take place. Um, you know, and I think these are things that, you know, for these struggling poor economies that are going to desperately find it difficult to get enough vaccines out to their people, and they've had a very bad COVID-19, I think China has been doing okay. Um, and throughout the rest of the region, yeah, I mean, you could say that Vietnam is maybe not quite so uh, so so friendly. I don't think it's ever been desperately friendly, but uh, you know, it's actually done extremely well out of the trade war. I mean, it's the single biggest beneficiary of manufacturing uh, relocation throughout the region. I mean, there's been a little bit elsewhere. Thailand's done okay. Malaysia's picked up a little bit, but Vietnam's been head and shoulders better than all the rest. So I don't think China would be worrying too much about their, their external view. And yeah, you, you brought up a lot of things up, military side, um, the macro side. I think also, again, what China wants to do is to, to, to some extent ring fence some of those issues. Yes, it wants to, to participate uh, in, in the environment. It knows this is a thing that it actually needs to do domestically. So yes, it'll get involved and it'll get involved multilaterally. And on trade, it will likewise also do that because it doesn't like getting beaten up um, by individual countries slapping tariffs on willy-nilly. So it will try and go down uh, a WTO route, and it will be pleased if the US comes back on board that. Um, but on the military side, yeah, I think it's 
it's not clear that, that's that, that there's much overlap there. I think that's a different um, pillar. And I don't think necessarily the two sides will talk to each other when they're coming up with their policies. Well, I'd like to drill down a bit more later on into this whole issue of sustainability. But while we're remaining on this big picture, Phil, do you have anything to add to what Angela and Rob have just said on, on these big picture issues? I, I think kind of like, you know, from the consumer perspective, if we were to think about the, the brands, we think about kind of like what drives kind of an everyday sort of life situation. You know, we are talking about some huge issues here, but in the very basic sense, it's like what is influences people's behavior and what is influencing the, the products and the services that they're going out to buy? And we talked a little bit about kind of the, the U.S.'s brand. I, whatever happens, the U.S.'s brand is being impacted. Consumers used to look at as certain aspects of, of consumers across Southeast Asia, uh, you know, Indonesia and, and, and Philippines particularly, would look and see what was coming out of the US. Their, their cultures were influenced by the brands, by the heroes, by the stories that were coming from there. That is less of a case now. I think the way that social media is going, the way that uh, digital media, the way that like, you know, Netflix, etc., are going after more local influences, are going after more relevant, more believable aspects. And I think there's a lot that Southeast Asia particularly is, is bringing in from China. And all of these things will influence the brands and the, and the lifestyles and what aspirations are from a consumer sense. So the, the, more, the more chaotic there is, the more these kind of big picture ideas almost negatively impact people's impressions, the more people will resort to what they understand and what influences them, which is the, the brands and the people around them. Uh, ultimately, the, the brands and the companies that connect to that better will be most successful in kind of the rise of uh, the economies in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so I can see your point, uh, islands of brand awareness in a sea of chaos. I, I, can, I can see that happening. And we're getting quite a few questions coming in now, which is very good. So please, audience, keep the questions coming in. And one of them uh, is on sustainability, which I wanted to get onto anyway. And I'd like to put that to you, Angela. The viewer is uh, unashamedly asking about outcomes in the case of Biden winning, which, as we said earlier, according to the polls, does seem to be the most likely outcome, although we cannot prejudge the issue. So the listener says, if Biden does win, what does this mean in a concrete way for the COP process? Um, he has said that they would, the Americans would rejoin the Paris Agreement, which uh, Trump said uh, the Americans were not going to honor. What does that mean concretely there? And also specifically, what does that mean also for the stalled progress of the COP talks, which were to have taken place in Britain? The issue had been postponed for a year as a result of the pandemic. So Angela, would you like to answer that very specific question? Yeah, sure. I've, I've actually sat on a couple of calls um, that Biden surrogates have put on and uh, these are people that might get, you know, uh, cabinet positions or uh, working staff cabinet, staff positions in a Biden administration. And all of them say, you know, day one, uh, first thing he's gonna do is sign back up to the, you know, Paris Climate Accords. And there's gonna be a big push on uh, sustainability and ESG type issues. And that's gonna be domestically with the Build Back Better plan and all the, uh, the investments domestically in the states with respect to clean energy, building what they're calling like the second railroad boom, which would be light rail networks in every city that's over 100,000 people. A big push on uh, obviously things like 5G, universal broadband and the rest of it, but a, domestically a big push on environmental sustainability. And that's really coming in part from the, uh, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, AOC and the rest of it. 
Similarly, I think that's a real area where when Biden talks about building back alliances, coming back into the international community, being a leader on these issues, that's an area where, you know, it's just a natural fit. So I would imagine, while I haven't heard anything specifically about uh, the talks coming out of the Biden administration for that uh, specific, uh, you know, those specific talks, there's, I think they're going to have people at the ready off to go staff those talks, to show up, to be part of the solution, to be part of the standard setting. Um, and I think that, you know, frankly, even if it's a, a Trump administration, um, I don't think we're going to see, obviously, those, those alliances and that participation. But, you know, what we say to clients is the ESG story within business used to be NGOs, activist investors, that's changed. This is now coming from a lot of places. It's coming from younger people that are starting to vote. It's coming from investors that aren't just activist investors. Clean energy stock index funds are up over 130% this year in some cases. So the point is, uh, I don't think no matter who wins the presidency, this the, the focus on ESG is only going to continue to grow if you believe, as I do, that climate change will continue to happen and more and more younger people are going to vote and be part and be investing. Um, but I do think that Biden as a as a easy win, a quick win, would get heavily involved in that. Well, I thought the best part of the presidential debate two weeks ago was in fact when Biden started talking about climate change in the final 15 minutes. I thought he was quite very compelling on that. So Rob, it's surely um, the prospect of a, a Biden presidency and rejoining the climate accord and so on surely that would be massively helpful for Singapore, just pushing back a bit against Phil's rather controversial notion that maybe Singapore would do well out of Trump. Surely if Singapore is at the center of this multilateral world trading system, talking about unified taxonomies, say for green bonds, you as a representative of the Dutch bank know all about things like that. Surely uh, the idea of harmonizing the Southeast Asian, the Chinese, the American and the European approaches on climate change would be a massive boost to Singapore, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, one of the things that uh, strikes me as, as you know, very much missing uh, in this part of the world is more of a kind of regional take on this. I mean, the one thing about the environment, about greenhouse gas emissions uh, that I think we can all accept, whether or not you're a climate denier or not, um, is that, you know, greenhouse gases emitted in one country will affect a country next door and the country next door to that and basically do become a global issue after a while. Uh, whether you believe it's that that's causing climate change or not, I don't think is relevant, but if that's what you're looking at. So a regional approach is perhaps the only way to do it. And I think clearly Singapore does stand at the sort of heart of this region. Um, and were it to push in this direction more forcefully, um, yes, I think it could be very useful. But I mean, again, if you look at Singapore's actions on this, it talks a very good game on climate change. You look at some of the, the things that have been done in terms of architecture, you know, the, the fact that you've got to have, you know, trees growing and all these skyscrapers, all that sort of stuff. And yet, you know, it, it's been very slow to adopt things like electric vehicles. That's not really something uh, that's happened yet, although I know there's a lot more talk about that and about manufacturing some within Singapore as well. So I, I guess that's going to change in due course. Um, solar power is you know, not really evident anywhere here. You've got something like 250 kilometers of covered walkway, but not a not a single solar panel on, on any of them in sight. That would that seems an omission. Um, OK, there's no real uh, tides here, so you can't really have wave power. There's not much wind either. So you can't have much wind power. But, uh, you know, it's one of the heaviest greenhouse gas emitting countries per capita of anywhere in the world. So um, it does also need to start leading by example, as well as by just sort of saying, look, everybody, we've got this, this great sort of uh, legal system and ability to, to manage uh, the region and push ASEAN in a helpful direction. I think it also needs to start saying, right, 
okay, we're doing this. Look, everybody, we can do this. You can as well. And I think it sometimes takes a nation to, uh, to take it on and do this, which again has been frankly missing completely from everywhere in Asia's uh, response to COVID. You know, people have been spending billions upon billions of dollars to try and get their economies or at least to stop them from collapsing. Very little of that money going towards any of their Paris Agreement targets. You thought this is money they're gonna to have to spend anyway. Why not spend it on this? It produces GDP, it supports jobs. And there's been very little evidence of that. It's been really disappointing, in fact. There's an interesting point you make there, because of course in, in Europe, a, a large slice of this new 750 billion recovery fund is supposed to be going towards uh, green orientated projects. It's going to take a bit of time to get the show on the road, but uh, there is a joining up, I think, in Europe, which maybe is lacking in Southeast Asia. But this point about consumers and whether they are interested in green issues, Phil, uh, you're, you've got your finger on the collective pulse of, the, of world consumerism. Are consumers actually asking, as Rob is saying, we want some, some meat on the bones here, you know, we want some actual action, or are they content just to buy things which are promoted as organic products and uh, have got a slight tinge of green to their packing? Um, I, again, I'm putting it fairly simply, but are consumers actually asking governments to uh, take action, or do they simply want governments that spin a good line? There's, there's two aspects. I think that the consumers really hook onto a health and well-being story, um, particularly driven by the pandemic. You get locked up indoors, you can't go outside, like you're nervous about kind of like germs and things like that. Anything that talks about you being able to consume products and services and food that helps you and your well-being of your family, that is doing very well. And the pandemic has been a massive catalyst in driving that type of perception. Um, that said, uh, things like eating at home and the sort of the delivery nature has generated, I think, in Singapore alone, like uh, thousands of tons of extra plastic waste just yeah. over the short period of the lockdown because everyone's now eating disposably. Um, and in Singapore, echo Rob's point, no one's really doing anything about that. But again, I think the catalyst of, is the pandemic. It can be to change. More and more people, one in five, are now wanting to maintain some of their healthier practices and the sustainability comes through because of that it's more to do with the understanding the uh, origin of your food and maybe this is all the way back at the beginning of the pandemic about was it a bat was it a snake what was the wet market like where this all started but people are starting to ask much more questions about food safety again this is an area that singapore does quite well in it's quite diverse in terms of the food that it sources um, from the region and from the world and understanding the food journey and the food miles that's where i think a lot of the governments in asia can do a hell of a lot more because consumers are now asking for it just before going back to weightier matters to uh, angela sticking with consumers for a while um, just to understand it a bit better myself phil are singaporeans becoming uh, less healthy as a result of the pandemic having to stay inside and not walk around so much and also has there been a big increase in alcoholism because uh, in Europe, certainly, people say that uh, that has become a major problem and referrals to Alcoholics Anonymous and so on uh, have really shot up. But what is the position in Singapore? Uh, very much driven by health. I think there was a recent study with uh, AIA, maybe Nielsen as well, that was talking about the sort of the safe reopening, the sort of the, the sort of phase two when people finally got outside, um, the consumption of food and vegetables, the desire to go back to kind of more group exercise as a way of socializing um, was a massive motivator for people. 
and AIA, particularly in the area, are looking to kind of to harness that with some of their you know insurance packages that they have and their sort of their well-being um, focus. That is something that's going to stick, um, and I think you'll find that in Singapore, the there's always been an element of healthiness, but there's also been the bubble tea, which is not so healthy to consume. But it is that kind of that's where the that's where the reward comes from. The very high calorific, the very kind of like dairy driven treats. It isn't so much alcoholism in Singapore. That's probably driven more from an expat variety than I would say um, from the sort of the sort of the local populace. Um, but the, the 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 change and the kind of the force change is definitely something that consumers want to stick with. And so again, brands and the government that can stick to that and really reinforce programs that will encourage the healthy lifestyle, but brands will do very well if they tap into that sensibly. Yeah, well, that's good to know. I'm sure we'll get onto the alcoholism at the annual wine tasting event of the Singapore British Chamber of Commerce. We won't deepen that now. And Angela, I've got a, a question for you, which has come in from an audience member, which is tailor-made for you. And it's a more personal one about President Trump and the virus. And the uh, audience member says, having caught the virus at, and allegedly having now recovered, is that good or bad? Does it somehow make him more human in the eyes of voters? That's a really good question. Uh, I think like any political issue at all in the States, it depends on what side of the aisle you're on in terms of what you think, <laughs> how to answer that question. I mean, yes, I, I think when he first caught it, um, I think that the thinking was even, you know, you know, heavily liberal news outlets came out and said, everybody came out and said like, gosh, we, we really hope he gets okay. That's a, gets better. That's the main point, right? So uh, there was this brief moment of kind of um, bipartisan well-wishing of like, gosh, you know, hope this person gets better and, and doesn't have serious repercussions in the rest of it. So I think there was that human element right, right out of it. But I think you know, for someone who, you know, he had, as you read the New York Times report, paid $750 in taxes one year. That's a lot of health care he got for the $750. But the treatments that he got were like, you know, top, top notch. The vast majority of Americans, even wealthy Americans, are not getting that kind of treatment. They're not getting that kind of, you know, experimental drugs and the rest of it. So I think the... Um, if I can say the kind of the unfortunate outcome, I think of the fact he got it, it seemed really quick, it seemed really mild, it seems like nothing. And now he's saying that was nothing, don't let it stop you. That's not true for a lot of people. I mean, I have friends whose parents have died. I mean, this is not something to say, I told you so, this is just a flu and let's all get over it. Um, maybe that's true if you have, you know, how many doctors you have and the medicines and the access to that stuff at a moment's notice, but that's not true for again, vast majority of America. So um, that's a tough one. I think, I think that kind of set the, the ability of the US population to kind of think about how do we get this thing under control? I think it set that back actually. It, um, I've got a few economic questions for, for Rob, but just one final um, question on the virus and Trump to you, Angela. And it comes not from an audience member, but from my 93 year old mother who's living in an old people's home in England. And he's certainly not an expert on these things, but she says, did Mr. Trump really have the virus? I think, yeah, I think he did because I think, you know, I was smiling when Rob said earlier, I'm prepared to be astounded. I thought that's a great line. I'm going to keep that. I, you know, nothing would surprise me at this point, but no, I do think he had it. I think that it took him away from physical campaigning in key swing states 
for a critical time period. And it was an embarrassment that a White House event was a super spreader event. And you look, you've seen the photo with all the red circles of all the people that caught it. Secret Service people caught it, very, very sick. So that, you know, it's a, definitely a net negative. And there's been enough, I don't think anyone would orchestrate something like that because actually it's, it's, it's pretty negative. And then I think also there's been with Chris Christie in the hospital and there, there was, you know, too many people that got sick out of that for that to, um, I think. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pass that on to the old people's home. It just shows that conspiracy theories are lying I know. Well in that, English I mean, that old just people's underscores the, uh, the level of disinformation the American public has been spoon fed for the last four years. And that's kind of where we are. Yeah, that's right. No, Rob, a question from the audience, absolutely uh, for you. Um, what has the what implications are there, what, whatever, whatever the outcome for potential US-UK uh, trade deal? Uh, we seem to be getting closer, don't we, to uh, EU-UK trade deal in the last few days. But what about uh, the prospects of a bilateral deal with the Americans after January? Um, I'm going to answer this question, but I'm also going to use it as an opportunity, if you'll let me, to just broaden it out to a sort of Please. slightly bigger potential trade deal. So, now there's the there's been quite a lot of chat about uh, a, a trade deal with the Trump administration. Of course, we haven't got one. Um, it seemed more likely than um, you know, were we to uh, have, have got a, a democratic uh, victory at the last election, possibly. I mean, one of the things um, that uh, President Obama said. Uh, to uh, you know, to the British people uh, on a visit over to the UK was if you vote Brexit, you're going to go to the back of the queue when it comes to any kind of trade deal. Now and, that and, and, and sorry, to sorry to interrupt, Rob, Rob, Rob do you remember he did say indeed queue, and the people said, well, he didn't say line, and that meant that yes. George Osborne yeah. wrote that line for him, he, and and that I think is a conspiracy. Theory. That's right. It may well be true that that was put in by the the Cameron administration because he didn't use the word line he used the word q but anyway, exactly end, yeah end of interruption q is a very important word in, in all of that um yes. and i was picked up of course by uh, by boris johnson who i think uh, you know was writing his piece for the evening standard and, and wrote something along the, the lines which went down very badly that this reflected some some sort of uh, you know kenyan heritage or something along those lines um which uh, i think has probably been remembered i don't think um joe biden is a particular fan of, uh, of Boris Johnson, I think I'm not sure whether it was Biden himself, but perhaps one of his, um, you know, close associates described him as being, you know, like Trump but with better hair, something along those lines. Um, so I don't think a, a Biden victory, you know, makes it easy for uh, for the UK to get a bilateral trade deal with the US. At the same token, I don't think it necessarily makes it particularly easy to get a deal if if uh, Trump gets back in again either. Um, but the, the bottom line is, either way, the UK probably looks rather desperate uh, to a lot of people around the world who are trying to get trade deals and might see us as a soft touch if they wanted to, to take advantage of us. Now, where this becomes quite important, and it takes us back to our region here, is because here in Singapore and actually a couple of the other ASEAN countries around us, we sit in the middle of two fairly big uh, multilateral, not completely multilateral, but, but sizable um, trade deals. On the one hand, we've got the CPTPP, uh, let's call it TPP, short Trans-Pacific Partnership, the thing that Trump said he would pull out of on day one uh, of getting elected, which he actually did. You know, he, he absolutely did that. Um, but prior to that, you know, Hillary Clinton had described this TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I can't remember how many countries in, about 13. Um, it was the US, but it's, uh, you know, four ASEAN countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, you've got a bunch, you've got Mexico, you've got Peru, you've got Chile, 
a load of people, Canada's in there. You know, if you wanted to, to, to quickly get a lot of trade deals, join TPP. And the UK government said it was quite interested in doing that. Now, of course, the US has pulled out of that. Um, and, uh, and Biden said he, he would potentially go back in, but only with renegotiation. Re it's basically the same line that Hillary Clinton was taking in the run-up to the last election, um, when uh, it was becoming fairly clear that free trade was not a vote winner with the American people. Um, they felt that you know that had been the case, and I think Hillary Clinton had previously described this as the gold standard of all trade deals. It had a lot of stuff baked into it to do with workers' rights, environmental protection, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, the US pulling out of that, a lot of those clauses have now been removed. The, the deal has been signed between the remaining parties, but it's sitting there and the US is sort of on the outside. It could be that, very that's, important. That's a very good point, uh, Rob. And it's something we might ask David Kelly when he comes in right at the end in slightly more than half an hour to talk about, because of course the fact that Britain has signed a trade deal with Japan in the last few weeks is yes. also a sign that maybe we could lock into the, uh, the, the successor agreement, which Japan is clearly very much in favor of. So thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, Phil, I've got another question, I think, which might be well applying to you from the audience, and it's about perceptions, again, and looking at how people look at the image of states. And the questioner says uh, there could well be more interest in America from Southeast Asia if there is a Biden presidency. Firstly, it will appear like a more humane, kinder type of uh, country, and maybe some of the healing could take place. But secondly, and in the sustainability side, Biden will embrace sustainability. So could there be more interest, the question asks, in America from Southeast Asia if there were to be a Biden victory? I, yes, I think I think very much it, it, it's a potential for that. Um, it's the it's the order of his to-do list if it was Biden that gets in there. Like what, what does he talk about? What does he shout about? What's the thing that he wants to intrinsically link some big American companies to? Um, one of those challenges will still be China. Um, you know, things like TikTok uh, is is well loved in Southeast Asia. Um, so, kind of, what does he do with with brands like that 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 need to kind of latch onto or kind of you know, WeChat again? Like, you know, these big brands that in the in the region it is huge. I, I think the thing for me is that what consumers are looking for. Uh, we did a study recently. Sixty one percent of consumers are looking for brands and therefore also countries roles to have in a society what are you what are you doing as a company like i want to buy your products what are you doing um to help people through this covid situation now obviously the the government's it's their, it's their job that's what they have to do but how well does that reflect how well does that work with your um your supply chain as a brand how does that work with your employees how many staff have you furloughed through this, how much money have you taken from the government versus what have you contributed back to society? I think there's going to be a lot of questions asked around those things from a lot of consumers here in Asia and within own markets. Um, the, the has, has, the, has the Trump presidency had an impact, do you think, on the way that uh, big brands, say, in the consumer area or the food and drinks area or the automobile area, uh, has, has it has an impact on those brands? or? Or have the American brands managed to remain somehow above the fray of the presidency? I, I think it's yes. I think the, at the moment they, they largely have, but only from this kind of pandemic side of stuff. I think, as I say, this, the pandemic is a catalyst. It's changed people's what they're looking for. Like the longer you go into the lockdown, and in Singapore, there's talk about phase three stretching to the back end of. 2021, it's a constant re-evaluation of your own personal values and what fits. 
that's where consumers are doing every day like they're confronted with these real challenges like is my job safe is my friend's job safe what's happening with my family what's happening with healthcare what are the products that i am spending my money on which might be well saved what are they doing for me and for those around me um a lot of advertising has to be very careful to talk about covid um, again, we've done some studies recently, like the ones that get it right are the ones that are able to bring in an element of humanity, the ones able to bring in like a, uh, we, we make a difference. So the, the ad is kind of having a, a positive impact on the momentum on the shift. A lot of that can still be protected from the government side of things. But for me, I think there's a lot riding on if it is Trump, what does that say about the brands that are aligned with Trump? Um, is he the one that's representing what's best for COVID, what's best for health, and what's best for me as an individual? Yeah, yes, I think that's very, very thought provoking for many people in the audience who are connected with brands and, and consumer behavior and so on. And I've, I've still got some very good questions coming in, and they seem to be coming in in a very nice way that are geared towards uh, the, the members of the panel. So, and, Angela, one on imperialism, and the question that says that in recent times, in recent decades, China hasn't had much to do with embracing imperialism. Under President Xi, it does seem to have done that. And I suppose the question is thinking about islands in the South China Sea and territorial ambitions and aircraft carriers and so on. And the question says, is this because of something innate in China or is it a reflection of America and Mr. Trump? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't, we've talked about that a lot actually within Couturis. I don't think that's a reflection of um, of a President Trump, I think that's a reflection of a, of a President Xi. So if you look back at Chinese political history, you know, decades ago, the stance was, you know, kind of keep your head down, you know, do what you need to do, expand economic relationships, but do so quietly, don't stick your head up and the rest of it. And under President Xi, it's been much more aggressively, you know, we're here, we want to be more of a leader in this space. I'm not saying that they want to actually, um, you know, lead multilateral institutions and kind of be at the forefront the way the U.S. has been since, you know, since the end of World War II. But it's an unashamed, uh, more aggressive and ambitious agenda that they have in foreign policy, in military buildup, in the Belt and Road Initiative, in kind of international economics. So I think that's being driven domestically. Uh, from China. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we'll just see how that pans out because it could go in, in several directions after January. Um, Rob, just weaving back to the supply chains, which we've been bringing up before also in the context of, uh, of sustainability. Uh, a question about the World Trade Organization, which is now going to be under new leader. It could well be the former African uh, Nigerian finance minister who could be in charge of the WTO. But the question that says, what are the implications for the whole global multilateral supply chains uh, if there were to be a change in presidency? And specifically, would a Biden administration work more comprehensively, more persuasively, more multilaterally with the WTO? Yeah, that's, that's a really broad question. I mean, there's so many aspects you could pick on. So, I mean, I'll just pick a, a couple of them very quickly. I think WTO, I think Biden has shown you know, much, much more interest in, uh, in re-engaging with. So that's helpful. But I think everybody around the world recognizes that the WTO is maybe not a broken institution, but certainly not one that's working brilliantly well and it does need reform. So that would hopefully be supported 
from uh, from a you know a new administration. There's no no chance, I think, of Trump pushing a reform of it. I think he'd rather just you know, have nothing to do with it. Um, the the whole aspect of uh, of sort of supply chains and resilience, though, it is very interesting. I think we've had a number of years, a number of shocks. A lot of them centered around China, which was of course the, the global manufacturing hub for everybody for the longest time. And a couple of things, it was it was a bit creaky even before uh, the trade war. It was a bit creaky even before COVID-19. China wasn't the cheapest place in the world to make things anymore. So people were already beginning to reevaluate that. But I think, uh, you know, consecutive years of trade war followed by COVID-19, people go, oh, we just can't have all our eggs in one basket. So yeah, there's perhaps an element of bringing things a little bit closer to home, or at least building in a little bit of you might call it redundancy. Um, so you don't you don't just do everything in one place, but you have a little bit in Vietnam and you stick a bit in Mexico and you do a little bit somewhere else in EMEA perhaps uh, as a way of coping with those things or the natural disasters that happened uh, after, for example, Japan's Fukushima earthquake and tsunami. That brought home again the, uh, you know, the, the problems with these very, very lean, very, very efficient, but actually very fragile supply chains. And I think the world's now looking at this and thinking, yeah, it was cheap, it made us a lot of money, but we can't, you know, when it goes wrong, it's cataclysmic. We can't have that anymore. So we but do has the evidence been, uh, Rob, um, even before the pandemic, but after the America First strategy, has the evidence been that ASEAN supply chains have become shorter, which has actually benefited ASEAN integration? I believe I remember seeing some figures on that. Yeah. Is that borne out by what we've seen recently? Definitely. I mean, the, the supply chains are very complicated still. I mean, a, a bit goes here, a bit goes there, but there's a lot more within ASEAN Ultimately, China's still the biggest consumer market now. That didn't used to be the case. It used to be we made things in this area, we shipped them all to Europe and America. Now we make things in this area, we ship them to China, ah, and we consume some of them locally as well. Uh, so pr producing in the area for this huge uh, you know, consumer market, which is China these days, is very important. You don't produce for China over in Mexico. You know That, that doesn't make a lot of sense still, but you do produce here uh, in the region, and, and that's definitely been to the advantage of, of Southeast Asia. A question and for will Phil. continue to be. No, thank you. A question for Phil on the entertainment and sports industries. We spoke just now about keeping fit, but one area that we've not spoken about is the very considerable amount of service that comes from uh, entertainment, and that's particularly a factor in the UK, as you know, where uh, the West End is at the moment uh, dimmed because of the lack of theatres. And unlike in countries like Germany, uh, people working in the theatre are not paid by the state. Uh, they are freelancers often. So the question that says, um, and I don't know whether you can link this maybe to Biden or put the answer more generally, Phil, would Biden be good for the arts? Uh, also, one thinks about the struggling people in Broadway at the moment, but maybe you'd like to answer that more generally as part of the, the kinder, softer, touchier style of the Biden presidency. Would he be better for the arts? And also, there's not a lot of money to go around. So where is it all going to be funded? Phil, can you answer that question? Yeah, yeah, it's a nice, easy question to answer. Um, I, I think that you know the, the arts and and uh, you know entertainment as a whole is such an escapism for people. Like, there's the food and beverage side of things. Like, you know, what happens in the world? You you go and meet your friends and your family. You have dinner together. So the restaurant scene will be up and down, absolutely. But the good restaurants, the ones that are able to sort of adapt and tweak and survive, that's kind of okay. The challenges and like things like the theatre, who's going to the theatre as opposed to who's watching Netflix? 
and your definition of the arts i think is gonna is gonna see a big change like the little production houses the little kind of broadway musicals like i don't know how much they can survive i don't know how much you can get people out who are willing to spend their money into these types of places um you're going to see a lot more turn digital you're going to see a lot more um having to do almost a fly on the wall documentary bringing things to life in that way like netflix is such an enormous power of its content production they can just throw money at it and worry about where they can make it up later on because they can do that on a global scale I, I don't know how many people we've got on the call at the moment, but there's probably a good proportion of people on here that watch the Tiger King. Like, is that the arts? Like, is that in the same category as the, as the theatres and things like that? I'm not sure, but it hit the zeitgeist. It was the exact right program at the exact right time. And Netflix, through its kind of shotgun approach, wins these things. So for me, I think you've got to find ways of... of of changing people's definitions and ensuring that the contributors that are able to do that can get a platform to get seen beyond their normal traditional boundaries. And if they can do that, the creativity and, and whatever kind of like, uh, whatever they're able to bring to the table can be seen on a broader scale. And if you can do that, it will then survive and thrive in that way. Angela, are you worried about a world where we're going to be getting increasingly large amounts of our entertainment and indeed our spare time quotes, fun, end quotes, from visual encounters, late night screens, watching President Trump and Mr. Biden square off against each other, or watching a, a China version of Mulan on Netflix. Is that a worrying thing? Because in fact, there is a lack of human interaction in all this, isn't there? Uh, yeah, my perspective on that is, um, I, yeah, I didn't watch the Tiger King, but my, I think my entire office did, so I was smiling when that was a great reference. Um, I think that um, in the business community here, at least in, in Singapore, from what I see in our clients, you know, almost all of them are on Zoom calls, you know, all day long, and then they go, you know, and watch Netflix. And so there, you know, there is, I think here, we've seen more and more people try to get out. So like clients now want to meet for coffee and things, which is, which is nice. Um, I think what worries me is two things. One, it's, you know, the overall kind of mental wellness and physical implications of so much tech. Right. Um, but then also, quite honestly, and this I think has been the US has suffered from this in the last four years, which is, you know, now we're seeing the just how divided people are, is when you have the ability to get your own source of truth. And if that truth isn't actually truth, what does that mean? So when you have, you know, all this media that you can choose to consume, and if there's start, you know, starts to develop the, you know, the um, closed circles of what reality is, you know, we see this with QAnon, right? We can talk about that. But I mean, that, that I think um, gets very challenging because how do you dial that back? Like how do you tell, I mean, we now have in the United States, someone uh, going into Congress that's a QAnon believer. I mean, what does that even mean? So, you know, it, it, what, what concerns me is the more people go digital is just the higher chance that you're in your own bubble of news and entertainment and just we're lacking a single source of truth. And we've just never, as a country, and as frankly, globally, we've just never had that situation in well, people, centuries. People, people are vulnerable in, in a lot of ways. And, and uh, Rob, just while staying on the election for a moment, there's been a lot of talk just in recent days about uh, Iran or Russia uh, using uh, all kinds of nefarious email methods to try to win over a vulnerable and uh, maybe over credible American electors. You might like to comment on that because after all, it's very germane to the election issue. But 
just going into some of the HR issues as well, everybody on this call are working in offices. They've got uh, often people that they manage, particularly younger people, I think, have been very affected by this lack of ability to communicate with senior people in the office. Uh, older people is okay because they may be doing more bossing around them, being bossed around themselves. But could you comment on both those, uh, Rob, from a, a, a more human angle, you know, both the election electronics and the HR question I've just raised? Yeah, I think, and Angela touched on this very, very well as well. I think the whole aspect of, of people sort of getting their information from bubbles is a, is a very important one. And it, you'd think, it's you know, really, can Iran you know, go out and really influence this just by targeting some Democratic voters and suggesting you know, bad things about you know, whatever it is? But I think actually increasingly you can say all sorts of rubbish and people will believe it. Uh, and and you know, the, the degree to which people are buying into conspiracy theorists these days which, you know, if you think about them for a second, you think, come on, really? It's, it's frankly astonishing, it's worrying as well. But, uh, you know, actually, you know, the other point that was raised just a, a bit ago is where do you get your genuine source of, of news from? There are, you know, US news channels that I used to watch in the past that I won't anymore. I mean, because I don't agree with the politics, but the ones whose politics I thought I did agree with, I can't watch either because they seem to have gone completely the other way. Everything has become some, so polarized. I don't believe anything anymore. So, you know, what, what do you do then? The FT, thankfully, I think for me is still, still the bastion of truth and, and, and wondrousness. So I'll still carry on with that. On the, on the human side, you're absolutely right. I've got some, some relatively young people in my team. Um, you know, the, the problem for, for, for them is, is where they're based. I think they've been locked down rather longer than we have, but you know, you do worry about them and they're not getting out, they're not doing anything. Um, to some extent- Are they watching this, are they watching this broadcast, uh, Rob? And I, they know that you care for them. Um, I, I care for them in many different ways. I, I let them know that, but you know, I am, you know, I do worry about them. I think top of mind for me with my team is how's your mental health? You know, it's not something you can say, say sort of out loud very easily, but you know, you imply it. Are you okay? How are you feeling today? What, you, you know, are you, are you overworked? So you do, I think the, the sort of management role, you sort of up your game a little bit because you're concerned, you're thinking about yourself. You're thinking actually, you know, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit as well. So it must be worse for them because they've been locked locked down for even longer, you know, depending on which country they're in. So you're constantly trying to evaluate that, constantly trying to make sure that they're not just working, you know, all hours and that they are at least, you know, finding some, some time to spend with their families or with their kids or whatever um, that goes beyond just this sort of constant drudge that becomes very easy when you're working from home. You just work every hour that you're not sleeping, uh, you know, if you're, if you're committed anyway. Um, so yeah, it's 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 something that's that's difficult and worrying, and I think you do have to work hard to make sure it doesn't doesn't get some victims, and it will. You know, there will be some people who really suffer. Well, mentally. thank you for coming. Phil, would you like to make a point on that? Yeah, I think you know whatever you think about you know Trump and his politics, he has completely changed the face of how politicians need to communicate with the populace. Like you know, you get you you find out what's going on with Trump through his Twitter feed. Um, Again, for, for better or for worse, but like he's completely changed that. And therefore politics and campaigning has to change. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that uh, AOC um, played a game called, uh, I'm gonna have to look at this because I don't even know the damn thing, Among Us, never heard of it. Not a game aimed at me, but it was enormous. Um, so she played a live streaming game, very much kind of like Gen Zers, and her following on uh, all sorts of social media skyrocketed more so than any of her counterparts, any politicians. The savvy politicians will get the right, the right platforms to communicate to a whole new audience. And that is what will become more and more and more important. The face-to-face -face rallies, the kind of the sort of that Trump loves, 
yeah, sure, they're nice. It's kind of that showmanship side of things, but the scale that you can hit if you hit the right social media, that for me is, is going to be repeated time and time again in multiple markets across the world of the success of what's happened in the US. Let me think about is, Among Us, Bill. Sorry, sorry. No, it's, it's, a game, it's a game which is all about basically lying. So it's perfect for a politician. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> That's it, that's true, yeah. And, and could you comment, Phil, also the, on the HR question? I think it's of great interest to the people listening, how they manage their offices, and also younger, up-and-coming people who may be not quite so sure-footed as the older ones in, in today's video world. You know, How do we deal with people like that? Also make sure, not just that they're not going off the rails, but how do we develop them professionally? Yeah, and, and again, I think that kind of echoes a little bit in terms of like when we think about HR, we have to think about HR differently. The, the skill set required to engage people over a, a Zoom call, over a digital call is completely different um, to what you have to do to hold someone's attention in a room. And we've onboarded some juniors here and you've got to use Slack a lot more. Like uh, you've got to use ways of kind of like direct messaging and group messaging and finding kind of digital recognition and rewards to make that work. That said, you know, market research has, has changed quite a lot. We've done a lot of stuff digitally. Nothing will ever replace the ability to meet people face to face and to have that social interaction with people. So whilst I can run focus groups online and I can do interviews with people through videos, nothing will replace me going to see their place of work, have those conversations and things. So COVID will get better. There will be ways and means around it. Might be lots of testing and tracing and things, but there, that will come back. What I think we're likely to see from an HR sense is a lot more flexibility and a lot more of senior people having to reach down. You've got to approach things like AOC has, find an advisor, find out what the new Among Us is and get on board with that. And that's what will bring through the next generation of workers. Well, thank you. I'm sure there's a whole new series of conferences on that, uh, which uh, I won't prejudge, but thank you for, very much for making those points. Getting into the final 15 minutes now, so got some quite deep-seated, uh, heavy-duty issues to get through in the next 15 minutes. One is perfectly enshrined by a listener, uh, this one for you, Angela, about the divisions in American society. And this person says uh, that the, the present setup seems to be more divided uh, in, in race, in terms of religion, in terms of social setting, age. The pandemic has contributed to that. But you could say that the great financial crisis 12 years ago also did a lot of harm in that direction. The question that says, uh, how, if at all, will things change if there is to be a change of presidency? So, yeah, um, Vice President Biden has come out on the campaign trail and, and said, I think his ad came out a couple of days ago where he said, you know, not everybody might vote for me, but I'm going to be the president for everybody, right? So I think Everything that I've seen come out of the campaign and calls that I've sat on, uh, listening to you know his surrogates, as I mentioned, um, you know, there's kind of three crises they talk about dealing with. It's COVID, it's the economic fallout from COVID, and it's the social inequality and civil disruption and civil civil strife in the states. And that's they're all obviously all interconnected. And COVID has obviously exacerbated um, the last one as well. So I think there's going to be a huge focus on trying to repair um, the damage in the states. I think it's very hard. You know, obviously we're not changing anytime soon, maybe ever the media issue that we've just been discussing, right? The kind of the, the bubbles of the media, but there are things that, uh, that you know, uh, politicians do starts tone from the top to start with, right? Like how you're talking 
to people and about people, how you're inclusive. Um, I actually have a, a college friend who's a congresswoman in Michigan and she's a Democrat and she turned her district uh, blue for the first time in 20 years. And she's terrific at all she does all day are small town halls, bipartisan. I want Democrats and Republicans there. I don't wanna you know, throw knives at each other. I wanna talk about what you need. Is it you know, prescription drugs that are affordable? You know, what are those things that you need? And I think if you had you know, someone driving those conversations um, at the presidential level and then on down, I think you can start to see some of that be repaired. I think it's gonna be very hard. And again, with the rise as, as we mentioned, militant groups and you know, a lot of people in America have guns, as we know, uh, there's, a, there's a, just divisions we've never seen. I mean, civil strife, um, not just the protests that we've seen, but even as, as I said, my friend's district in Michigan, someone put her yard sign up and her neighbor hit her on the head with a wrench. I mean, things you'd never imagine happening in US you know, farmland neighborhoods, it's just astonishing. So it's gonna be very, very hard to address, but the Biden campaign, I think really recognizes this is a massive issue and we need to, we need to address it, let's try to. The ironic thing, Rob, is of course, President Trump did set out to address some of those divisions because he wanted to speak to small town America. He wanted to speak to uh, Main Street that allegedly had been left out of the quantitative yeah. easing bonanza. He, he must have also achieved something of that. I mean, small people's uh, incomes, uh, lower class, if you like, um, minority groups' incomes have actually risen quite substantially under Trump. So is this divisiveness that we talk about really quite as bad as all that? Because in terms of just sheer economics, there has been a bit of leveling up as a result of the American recovery in the last four years. Uh, I think, yes, there, I mean, if I- Yes, Angela, please answer that and then we'll go on. Yeah, just to make a comment on that. I think, you know, regardless of people's pocketbooks and yes, Trump did go out to the farmers and his whole entire, you know, the base, um, a lot of family and uh, some friends are in in his base for sure. I mean, that, you know, those are pocketbook issues that he he went after, you know, a certain, to cater to a certain um, segment of the population, but the language and the actions that we've seen day in and day out since the start of his campaign have just been uh, so divisive. Um, I, I don't think there's one, I can't think of one instance where there was anything remotely unifying. Across, you know, America's a big place with a lot of races, you know, different genders, social issues, socioeconomic, you know, it's kind of all over the place. And he's catered to one slice of that and nobody else and everybody else has been vilified. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I think the damage is almost irreparable. Rob, would you say it's as bad as that? Yeah, I, to be honest, I, I don't think it's been particularly a, uh, you know, the economy as a whole has been fine. Um, but I think we always have to be very, very careful about averages and aggregates. It's one of the things that economists bandy around figures like GDP and things go, yeah, it's great. Well, it, it's been great for some people. I mean, the stock market has been on fire for, for you know, most of this four years period. Uh, it's done very, very well. And throwing a lot of um, central bank money at it has certainly helped. Incredibly low interest rates, rates have been very useful, as, as have uh, tax cuts. But I think the tax cuts have disproportionately, as they always have, gone to the richer elements. Uh, quantitative easing, the lower interest rates, um, typically, again, tend to favour people who own assets, financial assets, that is, as well as, as, well as housing property, uh, which, again, tends to, uh, to exacerbate that. Uh, that sort of rich poor trend 
And if you look at just uh, overall wages growth, yeah, it's not been too bad. Um, it's perhaps been a little better than in the past. It's not been particularly good. Do we have more people in overall manufacturing jobs today than we had before? Well, it's hard to say because of COVID, because everybody's just about out of work right now. Um, but would we have had without it? Not very obviously. Trade deficits wider than it's ever been. Um, so all these things, all these sort of very sort of, you know, let, let's tackle manufacturing, let's tackle trade deficit. I mean, they haven't actually delivered uh, the, the, the benefits, perhaps. And maybe if you felt you're on the manufacturing side, you felt Trump has been fighting your corner if you're, you know, blue collar worker uh, in, in a rust belt. But, but, but China's trade surplus surface with America has actually increased, hasn't it? That's one of the uh, little known impacts of the of the crisis. So again, things have gone in a slightly different direction. But do, do you think they're just looking into the future, Rob, that there will have to be massive tax rises for the better off in America, as they will no doubt be in the UK as well, because we cannot carry on living with this level of deficit? Yeah, there's two ways of looking at this. You could you could take that view, and I think that's probably the conventional view that there will have to be uh, some money found from somewhere. Who's got it? Well, it's the rich. They, they've had it for the last uh, number of years, so it's going to be a, a question of taking back from them. Or you could believe the magic money tree um, theorists, and uh, you know, don't rule them which, out. Which which do you believe in at ING Bank? Do you believe money money grows on trees and let the quantitative easing carry on. I think well, let, the, the president of the Dutch, uh, the Dutch Central Bank president <laughs> does not agree with you. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not a magic money tree uh, <laughs> believer, but I would just say, look around the region. There are a couple of uh, central banks around here that seem to be dabbling in that area and getting away with it for now. So I think there's a point at which uh, you know, people will try some new things. They'll, they'll try to print a bit and see if they can get away with it. My, my worry is, you know, how far can you get away with this either before the market hauls you to task and um, you know, punishes you in the way you imagine that financial markets ought to do if they're doing their job, or that it leads to some kind of uh, new crisis, which let's face it, it tends only to be a number of years away. We always seem to be sowing the seeds of the next one. That's right. Well, I think the president of the Netherlandsche Bank will be there to point the way if things do seem to be going in the direction of perdition. Um, Angela, we're getting very close to the end now. And I want to talk about the moral renewal of America. This is a big issue for the last 10 minutes. It came up in a call I had with, uh, you used the word surrogate, this is a person who may well be part of the new administration if there is to be a new administration. Um, is that a part of the agenda? Also applying what we said about divisiveness to the international agenda. I remember when President H.W. Bush came to Germany 30 years ago and spoke about partners in leadership with Germany. We don't see that kind of rhetoric now. Is it going to be, as well as an addition, an additional touch of humanism internally, is there going to be just a more constructive re-engagement with America's allies abroad? Oh, absolutely, I would say, because, um, uh, you know, a, a couple things. Number one, I think that's been a stated goal of the campaign, of the Biden campaign. Number two, that's been kind of, you know, he's an old school internationalist, right? I mean, that's been his experience decades and decades in government is doing exactly that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I think there's a recognition that, you know, America is sliding in terms of its role in the world and its ability to kind of chart its own destiny and whatnot, and we need to get that back. And then also, you know, there's the issue of, you know, in the Trump presidency, a lot of those staff positions, ambassadorships, even to Singapore, as we know, uh, just were never filled. And I think there's a big, going to be a big, big focus if Biden wins on staffing up the bureaucracy, the domestic agency, the diplomats, you know, it's just been really hollowed out. And so there's just going to be simply a lot more people 
uh, going going off and doing that. So I think that uh, that'll be a, a big focus. And you know, but I will say for sure, there's no turning back the clock. I think everyone recognizes, you know, times have moved on. We don't have exactly the TPP anymore. We certainly don't. You know, the, the world has changed. Um, in and you know, Europe's doesn't really you know maybe trust the U.S. It was a risk that you know we have another person in power that also phrase alliances, you know, we just don't know a lot of, a lot of water has gone under the bridge, but I do think that a big focus will be these international alliances. But last thing I'll say on it is the number one focus, I think out of a Biden presidency would be domestic. So yes, watch for those alliances and tackling things like climate change and the rest of it, but huge focus on COVID, the economy and the social issues in the States. Yes, foreign policy certainly won't win any elections. Uh, we're waiting for Phil. I hope we'll be rejoining us. He seems to have gone off the call for the time being. He may have. I'm been... back. I'm... Oh, are, are you back? Uh, I, um, I, see, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether you heard that question I put about the social divisiveness of, and, and so on in the it United is. States. Yeah, would you like to put your take on that before we go into the very final round? We've got about four minutes left. So please. Yeah, I, I think just thing. quickly, I think a lot of it, I, I, same with brands, is about authenticity. I think kind of Trump as a, as a win. Uh, tactic four years ago he went in there talking about kind of draining the swamp and about kind of the underrepresented and he's going to be kind of a man of the people and things like that um, and I think people bought into that I don't think he delivered obviously on some of these things and I think he has created a lot more of that divide but you kind of see it in the UK as well and the whole Dominic Cummins Barnard Castle debacle was very much an elitist us versus them. And therefore a lot of the rules that the UK try and bring in have been undone by the fact that there's no authenticity to what's happening. The communications they go for and they're asking everyone to follow, they don't follow themselves. So okay, well, thank you can have a leader that can do I, I, that authentically, I, I think you're gonna still have division. Again, the gap between perception and reality. Uh, before we hand over back to David Kelly, I want to ask you all uh, a final question. I'm going to do it in the order first, Rob, and, and then Phil, and then Angela. You'll have the last word. And uh, Rob, in question, you, maybe you could also try to address the prospect of uh, what president would be better for Britain in, at, at Britain's particular part, particular rather tortuous period in, in our economic and political history. But the question I want to put to you all is, what would be the best and what would be the worst thing that you could be expecting in the next year uh, from either president? So that's a fairly open-ended question for you, Rob, just to start you off. Yeah, uh, that's that's a very difficult one to come back on. I think, you know, as Angela's pointed out, I think, uh, you know, whoever gets in, the focus is going to be domestic. So, so to some extent, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference for the UK either way. Um, I, I think one of the things that's going to really flavor the relationship between the US and the UK, though, is actually what happens in terms of the next couple of days, whether the UK manages to come up with some sort of agreement with the EU, which doesn't threaten the, uh, the border with, uh, with the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. I think that's the thing. We're looking for a worst case scenario. It would be something that causes, uh, you know, no deal, hard, hard customs borders in Ireland. And then a really bad relationship with the US as a result of that. It's one of the things, you know, Biden, I think, with his Irish her heritage has made us. That's, that's, you know, very bad news for the UK. Thank you for that point. Phil, worst and best perspectives in uh, less than one minute? Yeah, I mean, in the year of 2020, coming up with a worst case scenario is quite challenging. Um, 
But I think that the worst case for me would be that we're still talking about this, that Brexit is still a thing that hasn't been resolved, that there's still some sort of legal wrangling between the two presidential hopefuls and that no one's really kind of, you know, it goes to like the Supreme Court and aspects like that. It could easily happen. And that for me, like no resolution, that's easily the worst thing that could happen. The best case is there's a clear outright winner. They win the electoral college votes. They win the popular votes and the world then moves on with the next four years with what needs to happen. Angela, you've got the most difficult task because the other two panelists have already said some very thought-provoking and intelligent things. So you have to surpass them in less okay, than Okay, so I can't, I can't repeat. Um, I'd say I'll start with the worst and then go to the best. So we end on an optimistic note. I think the Thank worst you. from a US perspective would be kind of two things. One, if we have a contested election that then leads into just massive civil strife, I'm talking violent civil strife in the States um, that goes for you know months and if, if things uh, go on until January would be bad. I also think regardless of who's president, but I think it would be a bigger risk in the Trump term too, would be if there were some military confrontation between the US and someone else that the US is ill-equipped to handle because we've gutted agencies, we don't have, um, you know, kind of cooler heads prevailing in the White House and the rest of it. So that that worries me. Um, I think a best case scenario, if we did have a, a case where, you know, in fantasy land, maybe <laughs> the US tackles COVID and starts to come out of the back of it, similar to Singapore and China and some other countries we've seen. And then also if we're able to corral spending into things like R&D, green energy infrastructure. I mean, there's a there's a massive amount of brains in the states that would do great at, at looking at those issues, issues and tackling them and doing so through jobs and uh, doing so in, in ways that are sustainable. And so that would be, if we could get that to actually work, I mean, look what we've already produced already, let's say in tech, but if we could get that to actually work, that would be fantastic. Well, thank you for ending on that. Now, I think it's very plausible as well as being optimistic, Angela. So I, I thank you for that. I thank you all three of you for, being very thought-provoking. We've gone over a lot of issues here, and I do hope that the audience has enjoyed it. Thank you also, audience members, for the very intelligent and thought-provoking questions. So, Angela, Rob, and, and Phil, uh, ending on an optimistic note, I think there is a good ground for optimism, actually, about multilateralism. And I think even if it were to be Mr. Trump, I don't think things would be quite as bad as all that. Uh, I obviously do hope, and I also believe that it will be a Biden president, but we have to wait for that. We mustn't prejudge the issue. And let's now hand over to our host, David Kelly, for a few final words. Thank you all very much for being on the panel. Thank you so much indeed, David, for, for chairing that session. Thank you to Angela, Phil, Rob. Thank you so much indeed for today's session. Um, just, a, just a very, very quick round of the things that are coming up. Um, one of the things that was mentioned in today's session was around the free trade agreement piece. And I know, David, you wanted me to say a couple of words on that. And we do have a podcast out with Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner, Natalie Black, who talked through the four areas of the DIT regional Asia-Pacific trade plan, including market access and trade policy, um, looking at new investment into the UK, supporting UK businesses to grow overseas, and also how they work with the rest of government. So there is an element of that in there around uh, the continuity agreements with Singapore, um, although they can't say very much with all of the tectonic plates moving at the moment, and also with Vietnam but also the new partnerships with Australia and New Zealand. So just picking up on that point, David, just wanted to get that out to the audience as well today so that there is a, there, there is a way we can play that back. Um, and if anybody wants any more details of that, please reach out to me. I'm very happy to share the link with you. 
Once again, thank you to the panellists. Thank you for you all joining us today. Hope you found that interesting. And with that, I will leave you to say a final thank you. And I very much look forward to seeing you all again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britjam.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at